Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Hi, Sherry. Hello. I missed you last week on the podcast. Okay, yeah. It was sad not having you there. Yeah. It was a great conversation with Deb. I know, I missed hearing that, but... I mean, I missed being a part of it, but I heard it, so... Yeah. It was good. It was fantastic, wasn't it? Yeah. But we really missed you. Um, I... Did you catch at the beginning? I told everybody... I made it, you know... Not an excuse. I told the truth about where you were. I told everyone that you were having a lobotomy. Oh. To have all your naggy bitchiness removed that caused my alcoholism. Because clearly it was all your fault. Yeah, yeah. It's all my fault. You'll never miss a podcast again. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. There might be a time or two. I didn't really do that. I know. I just think it's... I I feel like a a lot of stuff this week... I've encountered has pointed toward that, you know, um, that, that non-truthful, I can't think of the word, popular misconception. That's what I was going for. That popular misconception that my drinking could somehow have been your fault. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, nothing's happened this week that's pointed toward that in our relationship, but I've, I've come across that. We come across that every week, but I've come across that a number of times this week where either the spouse feels that way or we hear, you know, direct information from the alcoholic who's mm-hmm. blaming the alcoholism on their spouse. <clears throat> yeah. It's just sure not that, how it works. I'm sure that happens a lot. I mean, a lot of people, even just in, I think in society these days, they don't want to be accountable for their own actions. So I can only imagine the role addiction plays in that. You mean there's a lack of accountability mm-hmm. in general in society? <laughs> I have. I have come across that many, many times, many times. Wow. Even just this week. But yes, I feel like there is lack of accountability for, you know, your actions. And I know addiction is different than just acting out. Mm -hmm. But I can only imagine that the addiction makes that so much worse, not being accountable. I mean, I heard it a lot, you know. Sure. Well, we're arguing, so now I have to drink more. Yeah. would say, or... I mean... I need to, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, like, you know, oh, you're not having any fun with me, and now I'm going to have to drink more, and, you know. Yeah, I I definitely said all of that and more. It's, it's definitely a disease. I'm definitely a believer that the neurological makeup, the chemicals in our brains are changed by excessive drinking, and it is a disease and needs actual medical professional treatment. To recover from, like other diseases, I'm not a believer that it's a moral failing, but you can still take accountability and say, "Okay, here I am. I'm in this predicament." It, it'd be like smoking is to lung cancer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, lung cancer is definitely a disease, but if you chain smoke three packs a day and you get lung cancer, I don't think we have to search too hard for the cause. Yeah. So there's some accountability that needs to be taken there, and that dovetails really well with our topic today denial um i think we're going to title this episode denial delaying the inevitable and that's that's really what denying the truth about the predicament that we get ourselves into as alcoholics is all about i mean you're we're all going to get to the same point it's just a matter of how and when and if we want to continue to do things like blame our lovely spouse for our drinking, then the uh, the how and when is going to be delayed. And that's really sad because we, you know, we only get, we only get one shot at this thing and why should we waste a bunch of it? You're, exactly. You're, uh, you look a little groggy today, Sherry. Have you been drinking this morning? <laughs> no. Just not no. feeling it? No, I'm just listening to you. Oh. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate that. You are an excellent listener. We want to give a tip of the hat right off the bat to our friends in Echoes of Recovery because a lot of what we're going to talk about today, I mean, what we're going to talk about today is 100% our story and our experiences, but it was really stirred in our video calls that we did with our Echoes group this week. 
they had a lot of really powerful kind of emotional thought-provoking things to say this week and it made me think about denial a lot and decide yeah let's do the podcast on the same topic that we covered in, in the echoes group this week because it's it's really fresh you know the memories were drudged back up for me this week and it's really fresh so tip of the hat to those folks um really great job in our in our group this week um i was you know i say that i was an alcoholic for 10 years and alcohol alcoholism is a self-diagnosis so there's no real firm you know scientific way to end cap the duration but i say 10 years because that's the amount of time from the first time that i tried to quit until i finally made it over the hump to permanent sobriety and the first time i tried to quit you know anytime somebody who has been a consistent even heavy drinker for a long time decides to quit drinking they're obviously acknowledging that there's a problem and once you acknowledge that there's a problem there's no way to unknow that you can compartmentalize and you can continue to try to drink and we're going to talk about some of the things that I did to try to continue to drink but you can't unknow that there's an issue so that's why I designate that as the beginning of my alcoholism. I knew there was a problem and yet I kept drinking. And I think there are two reasons why I kept going for, you know, 10 years of active alcoholism is a long time. And really, I would, you know, I would give lots of things to have that 10 years back. That's really, that's really sad. But there's two reasons that it kept going for too long. The, the first one is kind of process. You know, I thought of, and when I say process, there's there's just a process that anyone has to go through to get sober. I'm not talking about the 12 steps. I'm not talking about our shout sobriety program. I'm not talking about the specific treatment that you go through, but there's a process to coming to grips with the fact that you have a problem and beginning to address it. And so, like, for instance, at the beginning... You know, I thought of an alcoholic as someone that sleeps in the gutter and pees on himself and drinks out of a brown paper bag and has no job, no family. They're just trying to scrape together another five bucks to go buy the cheapest pint of liquor that they can find. Was that your, you know, your father was an alcoholic. So I think your impression of what an alcoholic looked like was very different from mine early on. Can you talk about that for a second? I think that because my dad held a job and he didn't drink during the day, you know, when he was working and, um, I wouldn't even say he drank every night. It's just when he did drink on the weekends when he wasn't working that, you know, it was, it would be pretty intense and had Did you guys shifts. use the term alcoholic? Um, because well, he held a job and didn't drink well, every day? I don't, I don't know when I first... I don't know when I was first made aware of that was the word. I think that was much later in my life. My parents divorced when I was two. So I never really lived with him and my mom. Um, I think she used terms like, you know, he drinks too much. He's a heavy drinker. Uh I think it was later in life, maybe like when I was starting high school, that she kind of said he was an alcoholic. and, And that's why they divorced. And... I just didn't see him. I mean, there were times I would see him, like, his mood would change, but he never, he never was, like, angry or volatile around me, like, when it was our weekends to go spend with him. I was always a little nervous when I was younger because I, it wasn't from, I was kind of a homebody and didn't spend the night with anybody, really, but because it was so different and he did drink and I knew that alcohol was fueling fights, um... It made me nervous. I, I wonder if your mom, I wonder what their reasoning was for not using that word until, like you said, you were in high school. I wonder if there's some denial in there for her. Like, you would, know, I don't want to diagnose and pin this label on this man who holds down a job and still yeah. has weekends with his daughters. I mean, I think there's so much stigma associated with the term that often we want to stay away from it, even when it's. What What is now, for me and for you, glaringly obvious. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, because this was the middle 70s, like, when they divorced. So I don't necessarily think that we were 
looking at alcoholism as a disease. Right. And, Just a moral failing. Yeah. And I don't think that... And she didn't grow up being around, you know, around alcohol. Nobody drank in her family. I mean, my... Her sister and brother did, and then they got in severe trouble, mm-hmm. like, when they were in high school and did that. So, um, I think that maybe she just didn't understand, either. And I think as she um, was doing her own work and healing and, and stepping away from the marriage, that was pretty rocky in a lot of ways, um, when he would drink and there would be fights. I was say, how could it not be, right? You know, I think that that's when she started to understand that it, you don't have to be living in a gutter, Mm -hmm. you know, living on the streets, um, to be an alcoholic. Yeah. It's interesting. The label is so stigmatized and we want to avoid it. And that certainly for me was part of that process, uh, that took 10 years for me to, to work my way through the first step being acknowledging what an alcoholic is. Because like I said, I thought of it as the gutter drunk. And there was no swaying me from that for a long time. So that that's that's part of my denial, for sure. Um, but it's also part of the process of working through uh, finding your way to sobriety when, when you're in alcoholism, recognizing what an alcoholic really is. Your maturity was another part of it because we partied together when we were in college and then even as young adults before we had kids. But then when we had kids, which is the case so, so, so often... The mothering instincts take over, and I, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but help me here. I I feel like you looked at it like that chapter in your life was closed, and you were on to this new chapter called motherhood and parenting, and you didn't want to drink and party and, you know, black out. Not that you blacked out a lot, but you didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah, I think that, I think that it was even before that, and you just didn't, you just don't remember like I thought it was Speaking ridiculous. Of blacking out. And I thought it was ridiculous for you to drink every night. Right. Like I thought, well that's stupid. That's a waste of money. We're not socializing. And I think when you say we partied together, I don't think there were a lot of times where as young adults pre kids that I drank a lot with you at home or but if we, if we were to go out, that was different. Like, sure. if we were to go out and be with friends, but when I would we were drink. that age, but we, we were out that, a lot. Yeah. Um, and I did feel like, God, he drinks so much in a night. It's ridiculous. And I cannot keep up. Because we had real lives and jobs. And the thing with drinking with me was I always got hungover and had a headache and was sick. It was never fun for me the day after. I always knew that there was that pending doom of feeling like ass, but I just kept thinking, gosh, he just drinks so much in a night. How can he do this? And then still get up and go, you know, on a rut Saturday or Sunday morning after we had been out partying late in the hours. So as, as you matured during, like you're saying earlier than I even realized during our young adulthood, but then also as we had kids, you matured into motherhood. I looked at that like, you know, you're the one that's changing, not me. I'm just doing what we always did. And so there's nothing wrong with me. Um, So part of the process um, of working through to sobriety was coming to grips with the fact that maturity is not a dirty word. It's not a, it's not a bad thing. We all, we all need to get there. Then of course, there's the period in active addiction that almost everyone goes through again, part of the process of working your way to sobriety, that's the rulemaking. I am only going to drink on the weekends. I'm only going to drink beer. I'm only going to drink light beer. I'm going to drink water between every one of my drinks. Um, what were some of the others, Sherry? Uh, oh, count just counting numbers of drinks. I'm going to drink. I, I remember, I, I mean, I still, I look back with a great deal of shame, frankly, on the fact that I... I, and I would have said this out loud too. One of my rules was if it's a weeknight and there's nothing going on, it's just, well, no, uh, I don't actually, it's fading to the point where I don't remember the exact details. If there was nothing exciting going on, I think on a weekend, if there was nothing exciting going on. It was just a Friday night. I would limit myself to six beers, six mm-hmm. strong IPAs. Like that was some kind of 
thing to pat myself on the back for because I'm only drinking a six pack of six and a half or seven percent alcohol beers. Whereas if we were going out and we were going to be with people, then then I could have a twelve pack. Mm-hmm. So a half a case of strong beers was my prescribed limit, and I blew past those limits on both of them quite frequently. The six pack on the the lonely nights and the twelve pack on the party nights. So yeah, the rules they they were there. They were just like drawing a line in the sand so that you could break it, basically. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the process. Well, you thought you were being mature and responsible. Yeah. Well, again, Probably. this is after the period where I've acknowledged that something's wrong, mm-hmm. and I can't unknow that. Ah. Exactly. So I'm trying to control that, and you know, that was. A lot of ego, a lot of arrogance, but I had never experienced something personally that I couldn't control before. So I just assumed I just needed to try harder and then I would fail. And Well, I just need to try harder and then I would fail. And gosh, if I really buckle down and try harder, I got to be able to to fix this. And now when I think about where my life is now compared to that time, oh my God, so exhausting and so stressful. Why? Life's stressful enough. Why would you... Put additional stress on yourself to try to control the uncontrollable. I mean, it's just mind-boggling to me. I I look for ways to take stress out of my life now, not to exert more stress. So that didn't make any sense. And then part of the process, again, of working towards sobriety was when I would finally say, okay, it's time to quit drinking. And during that 10-year period, there were lots of times that I tried and I went months and months in sobriety. I didn't want anything else in my life to change other than the fact that I wasn't going to drink. So I still wanted the same socializing, social patterns. I still wanted, you know, we had kids. It's not that we were socializing a ton then, but we went to neighborhood parties and work functions and church events. And, you know, the church events were some of the booziest things we did. Well, with church friends. Not necessarily at sanctioned the church. church events. Yes, that's fair. Yeah, I would do want to clarify. That. Okay, yeah. that's fair. I think that's yeah, our friends that we knew from church. Yeah, but so yeah, we were still interacting in these same social circles, and I was just going to be the only one, and you know, forty people there, and I'm the only one not drinking. I, that's fine. Oh, except for that one, you know, pregnant lady. Me and the pregnant lady aren't drinking. The pregnant everyone or else nursing is, lady. Everyone else is drinking. Or you know, I think that's. Probably also a little bit of exaggeration. I think there were more people not drinking, which you didn't pay any attention or care. Well, there were people, whether they were not drinking or not, there were definitely people that were drinking one, right? They were walking around with one glass of wine the whole night or maybe two. I mean, you would fall into that category when when we were in this period, when we were in this Mm -hmm. area where you were really mature and I was not. I mean, you could have one or two for a three-hour period neighborhood party and be good yeah yeah and i i couldn't so i was in that that and i hear it all the time i'm not the only one i mean i think it's pretty much a universalism i'm gonna quit drinking but nothing else is gonna change including that horrendous night that i took my neighbors to a baseball game well they took me they had the tickets but i was the designated driver and they got as drunk as humanly possible and i had to stay because i had promised to bring them home just nightmarish things like that. So that's part of the process of getting sober is understanding all the things that are not going to work. The rules aren't going to work. Trying to continue on with your regular life without a beer in your hand, that is just flat out not going to work. There again, sobriety changes everything. It's not a solution in, in and of itself. Sobriety, that is, you have to make changes in your life in order to stay sober and to get healthy and to recover. And so those are those fall into the kind of the process category. Now just the pure denial category. You know, societally, heavy drinking is not viewed as a problem. Certainly not in the circles that we ran in. Now, if you're heavy drinking at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, that's a problem, right? Right. But if you are doing things like you know, annually for many, many years, we went to the Indianapolis 500. We grew up in Southern Indiana and that was just a part of the family culture and the, for me, the family culture and the, certainly the, the culture of the region. 
and getting really drunk at the Indianapolis 500, societally, there is nothing wrong with that. Lots and lots of people do it. And even the ones that aren't sloppy drunk, are, are they're a 12-pack in by the end of the race, and maybe they've just spread it out over the four hours, but heavy drinking is not frowned upon in those situations. Heavy drinking on a Friday night, I'm a kind of a country music fan, Sherry, and I defy you to listen to a country radio station and find two songs played back-to-back where at least one of them doesn't mention heavy drinking on a Friday night, cause, or heavy drinking in general, but it's usually... I don't know why. I, I drink equally on Saturday and Friday nights, but country music people drink on Friday night. That's the... That's the boy, isn't that an interesting little tidbit I thought you'd, I thought you'd like? No comment. <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody. You are a little on the quiet side today. <laughs> I keep looking over at you and it's like... I don't have anything to say about that part. I'm not going to have anything to say about the next thing you say I don't want to say, say anything either. about country music or drinking on Friday night. Well, so societally, I don't need to go on and on about the fact that societally heavy drinking is not frowned upon because anyone who's listening to this podcast will understand. I will. Can I interject something, though? Please. I think that societally you say that heavy drinking isn't frowned upon in certain situations, but I think you find your people that do that. I think that if you were to be... Heavily drinking on a Friday night with a group of, you know, people nuns? that were non-drink nuns. Okay, nuns. Um, Priests drink. They can drink. I don't know if the nuns I think drink the nuns can drink. Um, but I think if you were to be in a group that there weren't a lot of drinkers and you were the drunkest one at the party, like, we probably wouldn't have hung around with those people. We would have found a pe- group of people that were more to your... Um, I don't know, like drinking, drinking level. level. Like, yeah, drinking yeah. level. There like, you go. I think you find your people. Because there was a couple people from your work when we first moved out that I really liked this couple, but you didn't really care for them that much because they weren't drinkers like you and your other buddy. Yeah. From. I think that's super fair. So. Super fair. To, there are, like us now, for instance, like somebody could come be our friend and they wouldn't find excessive drinking to be normalized. Mm-hmm. You're right. But. I think that's the minority. Is that fair? I mean, it, sure. Yeah, it could be fair. Yeah. I, I just think you gravitate to the people that you have things in common with. And so if heavy True. drinking on a fairly regular basis mm-hmm. outside of society norms, I mean, I, I you're going to find that. Yeah. You know. I agree. Okay, but it's not hard to find? Will you agree with no, that? No, it's not hard to find because there is drinking everywhere in our society. There are lots of people out there drinking like I was. Yeah, so you didn't have to... It's not like... I mean, if we went to one of our neighborhood parties and I started cooking heroin, then that would be frowned upon. Mm-hmm. And I would be looked at like, what the hell are you doing? Right. Get that out of here. So, I yeah... It's it's just easy to blend in as a heavy drinker. Really, really, really easy to blend in. The another piece of the denial for me, not societal, but I was reasonably successful in other ways. Um, held a job, right? Got promotions on a regular basis. Had a beautiful wife. Uh, had a nice house. You know, all these other things had fallen my way in life through hard work and good fortune, the combination thereof, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea that I couldn't find a way to control my drinking was just unimaginable to me. So it kind of ties in with that process piece we were talking about. But the success that we have elsewhere in our lives makes the denial a lot easier to have. There is no way I'm going to let this brown glass bottle control anything for me because look at all these other things that I'm able to control. That's that's a huge piece of the denial. Let's talk a little bit about your denial, Sherry. Um, when I was drinking heavily, I mean, you, just the fact that we're together is evidence of the denial, right? Because I was drinking heavily when we were dating. And I know that you said... You have said many times on the podcast that I came from, you know, all appearances of a 
stable, healthy family. So you thought that that would be something that I could bring to our relationship was that kind of stability. And I think you've said many times on the podcast that it looked like I was going to be a hard worker and hopefully be decent at providing for a family. So these are on the plus side. But I was a heavy drinker. Where Were you kind of in seeing red flags but kind of ignoring them and denying them and moving forward? Or tell us about your experience, you know, before we got married, basically. Um, I, yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, I guess I was denying it. I saw the red flags, but I thought, surely to God, you're going to get away from your fraternity brothers. You're going to graduate. We're going to go and hold jobs. And you're not going to drink every night. And you're not going to drink like that. And you're going to be growing up and maturing and finding other hobbies. So I guess it was a form of denial. Did you, did, like, did you think these words, like, did you think that I would grow out of it? Yes, I, I thought, yeah, people don't stay drinking like this. Yeah. So the maturity that you anticipated for yourself, you anticipated that for me too. Yeah, yeah. So, I thought it was just the people that you were with and that you were, you know, that it was, you were in a fraternity that really enjoyed drinking and we worked at a bar and, I, you know, I knew that, I didn't think that you would not ever drink, but... I was like, oh, okay, well, it'll just be more mature drinking. Like, it'll be, you know, a fun cocktail or two on the weekends, and that's kind of it, because that was the life that I had, you know? Like, I grew up with, my mom didn't drink often, but when she did, it was uh, just one or two glasses of wine or on the weekend. Yeah. Or a wine cooler. <laughs> or yeah. and my, wine my mom and stepdad, they had, like, you know, like, Midori Sours or something fun, but fairly non-alcoholic yeah you know um if you're drinking midori sour sours you're doing that for the taste yeah not for the effect right and that's how i drink all about who drinks like that yeah i drink crazy i drink for the taste so that's why i wasn't a big fan of a lot of beer or things like that so yeah i just thought oh well then it'll be mature drinking and it'll be a fun signature cocktail or every once in a while one of the worst nights of my life, and I think you would agree, was the night before our wedding. So here we are, you know, on the precipice of a huge decision that was already made. I mean, we were just going to confirm the decision that was already made the next day. But I went out with my group of friends the night before the wedding. You went out with your friends the night before the wedding. We we ended up meeting up, and as is pretty typical in a relationship that's fueled by alcohol. You and I started bickering and arguing and fighting and it got worse and worse. And we eventually separated from our groups of friends and went and argued all night and barely got any sleep. And then went to our separate corners. You went back to your friends and I went back to my friends and we proceeded with the wedding. When you think about that, was there even any consideration given for you to calling it off or was it like, Hey, all these wheels are in motion. The money's been spent. The family's flown in. I'm saying yes. Was it, was there a piece of denial there for you on the actual wedding day or did you even think about it? I thought, God, I could not walk down the aisle. Yeah. I thought that a lot. I thought that all morning long, all night long. Like, why would I want to do this? And then again, I guess it was denial or hope that the only reason you drank like that was because you were with all of your friends from college and your high school buddy. And I mean, we weren't even supposed to meet up. Like, I did not want to be around you, you know. And now I like look back with regret. Like, I shouldn't have gone out in the same town, like the same bars that we all went to when we were in college. I should have just gone home with my mom and had a good night's sleep and let you act like a buffoon, a drunk buffoon. And I think that's what started the the argument was because you were so drunk. I was like, oh my God, you're going to be like a piece of shit tomorrow. How can you like function tomorrow? You're so drunk. Um, so yeah, I... I thought about not doing it. It's interesting. But hope. 
yeah. I guess, that you would get your head out of your ass and start acting like an adult now that there was an actual contract, an actual commitment. That's interesting, that relationship between denial and hope. They're like the yin for the other one's yang, you know? You, you know, you see this thing un- unraveling or you see the red flags or you see the warning signs and you deny them and it's got it's in almost every case I would think got to be the hope for something better well and then there's fuels the denial that allows the denial to take place and then there's that piece where you're like okay well maybe once we're back you know in our apartment away from all of our college friends and family that there can be some sort of convincing him that he drinks too much and that he needs to slow down. He needs to grow up. He needs to drink more responsibly. He needs to, you know, call it off after one or two. You know, that hope that that I thought that I could have some sort of influence. So then we we get into that period. We get into that period where we've got jobs and we've got increasing responsibilities starts with right home ownership and then and then kids and our lives are becoming more deeply intertwined and our responsibility level is increasing and you know we were I was still holding down a job I was not cheating on you I was doing a lot of drinking in the home so I wasn't out at the bars every night right. doing god knows what so at at but but still I was drinking excessively and I, it was becoming increasingly clear that I was an alcoholic but did those facts did the fact that I was holding down a job and still for the most part you know good to our kids and not cheating on you and all that stuff did that create denial in you did that create you know an ability for you to say it's not as bad as it it really is was there denial there? Well, I'm sure there was. I mean, what else could it be? Mm-hmm. I mean, it couldn't be any... And I think there was also that, like, you know, that we've got such an intertwined life. Like, untangling it would be awful, and it could be awful on the kids. And um, so I just didn't know how I would get out. So I think all of that's legitimate. I, I think looking at the situation you're in, both names are on the mortgage. Uh, maybe you're in a situation where, you, you know, one person's a stay-at-home mom and the other person's going to work. And so there's that financial component of can can we do this or, can you know, could, could I separate or could I not? There is, you know, co-parenting issues, which it seems are almost always super messy. And who wants to put themselves in a situation like that if they don't have to? So there's all kinds of legitimate reasons to 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 make the decision to stay, even if you're in a tough situation. If that's the decision that you make, that's a very individual decision. But what pains me is when I see people who went through the denial portion of this, like you and I did, well, like I think you and I did, where there's just not an, an acknowledgement for how bad it is. Yeah. Where people, you know, where we say, oh, there's still a job. There's no cheating. Um, we're not spending all every penny that we make at the bar. Um, that, you know, so it's it's really not alcoholism. It's really not that bad. I just need to suck it up and take a boys will be boys attitude. And I think that's a, a huge disservice that people do to themselves in their own situations and that we do kind of societally again kind of turning that other cheek and not recognizing no this is bad this is not okay this is bad it needs to be solved does solving it require divorce no not necessarily but it needs to be solved and addressed we can't just keep saying oh everybody drinks like this because that's what i would say to you sherry everybody drinks like this lots of guys drink like this like lots of guys drink daily it's not a big deal. I have a stressful job. So it's part of it. And that piece of the denial, it's one thing whether or not you make the ultimate decision to divorce and split up the family and that really, really hard 
road. But it's another thing entirely to just deny that it's as bad as it is. Yeah, and I, I don't know if denial was always the feeling I was felt, that or the feeling that I felt, I felt like I was stuck mm-hmm. a lot of times. Trapped. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think you were... From, I feel like what? I'm using, I'm going to use the word, thanks to our discussions this week, I think that I felt more denied of the things that I wanted. Rather than me turning a blind eye and being in denial about what was going on. I was very aware of what was going on. I just felt stuck and trapped. Yeah. At the time, I didn't understand any of what you're saying. But now, looking back, I think that's very fair. I don't think you spend a lot of time wearing rose-colored glasses. I mean, part of that, you are a self you know, proclaimed pessimist. And so the idea that you would just look at it like it's not as bad as it really is, that's just not logical for anyone who, who's gotten to know you, you know, well. So I think that makes a lot of sense what you're saying. You felt stuck as opposed to yeah. denying your reality. You knew your yeah, reality. Yeah, and I just felt denied and cheated a lot of good things. Yeah. Yeah. Another big piece of the denial, kind of more on my side of the fence. Our marriage was in a really bad place. We were arguing a lot. We, you know, created stress and tension in the household that transferred onto the kids. You know, it was just clear that you might still have loved me, but you clearly didn't like me. And so the marriage was in a bad place and huge piece of denial for, for me, for the people in my shoes, the alcoholics, as opposed to blaming that on the alcohol and recognizing what the true source of all the contention was between us, I shifted a fair amount of the blame to you. Now, I never got to the point where I just like kind of loathed you and dumped it all on you. I mean, we see that. And that makes me really sad when we see that. But that that was never where we went. I always wanted to fix the relationship and keep working on it. I was just working on the wrong stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. The the thing I needed to work on was getting the alcohol out of the house and, and out of our lives. And then, then we could roll up our sleeves and do the other work. But I was, you know, convinced I, that you just had a kind of a bad, naggy attitude a lot of the times, and it was easy for me to convince myself of that because, like we said, you are a self-proclaimed pessimist. And I mean, I know that I I am fairly moody. I have a hard time containing, controlling, or hiding my emotions. So, yes, someone can say something and it really pisses me off. Mm-hmm. It really rubs me the wrong way, and I can't shake it off that easily, so... That was lots of discussions about how I was moody, but then I think, well, I'm only moody because, you know, you started out a nice day and now you're drinking too much. You don't want to go and do something in the afternoon on a Sunday afternoon because you want to sit and watch a NASCAR race because it gives you reason to to stay in the house and drink beer. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I had lots of a fuel to my, moody, my moodiness. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, there were, I remember lots of discussions about how, and my mood would change and you would feel it. And so then that would make you drink more or it'd make you be upset and angry or you even walking on eggshells in a sense of like, gosh, cause you didn't, like you said, you didn't loathe me. Yeah. When we say that your bad attitude or your moodiness would make me drink more, I want to, I want to make one clarification. That was like permission for me to drink more. Yeah. I never drank because work was stressful or you were in a bad mood or something bad happened. I was, well, going back to this idea of control, I was trying to stay within my rules and not over drink and, you know, really control the uncontrollable. And then as soon as something bad would happen, there was some relief in that for me because 
you'll feel like, oh, well, now I've got an excuse. I don't have to follow my rules anymore because Sherry's being a bitch today. So I get to drink all I want or, you know, something bad happened at work or whatever. So I just want to make that clarification because nothing you did ever made me drink. It was actually sweet relief when you were nasty because I knew I, to myself, I didn't have to follow my self-imposed limitations. And so it felt like freedom in a way. I mean, not like, yay, I'm going to go scream about how great this is freedom, but there was, I was trading, I was trading the, the, the bad feelings of trying to control the drinking. I would trade those in for bad feelings about how you were acting and say, well, I don't have room to carry all these bad feelings, so I'm just not going to try to control the drinking. Did you ever feel like it was, uh, well, she's not holding herself accountable and together and being a decent person, so why should I, why should I follow my rules and hold myself accountable and, and follow through and be a decent person? I don't know that I ever made that direct one-to-one correlation. I mean, remember, as an active drinker, I was very, very selfish. So I don't know that it was ever, you know, you're not doing your thing, so I'm not going to do mine. It was more like, look at what's happening to me. I am being accosted by this stressful job situation or this unexpected expense or this nagginess and moodiness coming from my wife. Um, I looked at just kind of everything was attacking me as opposed to, well, if you would do your part, then I will do mine. I think it was a long time ago. And that's maybe a little bit of subtlety. That's not even super important, but I really felt like I was being accosted. And so I deserved to drink extra which is crazy. Uh, there was also in the category of of denial and blaming our marriage woes on anything other than alcohol. There was the cycle of, you know, I would drink too much. I would say I was sorry. I would try again. That would last for some period, days, sometimes, weeks, sometimes. And then I would overdrink again. And so because we had those periods of sorry and trying again, it was easy for me to say, oh, you know, we're making progress and I've just got to, I've just got to eliminate the over drinking period. Cause look at this sorry period and look at this trying again period of, of calm, relative peace and calm. So it can't be the alcohol. Look, we can, you know, look, look at how well we get along sometimes. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is if it was just a constant battle, and I was never sober and we never got along, then I think it would have drawn the clear picture earlier that the alcohol was the problem. But because we did have periods of peacefulness, I just like would look at it like, oh, what's, what's, let's do what we were doing then. What were we doing on that Wednesday and Thursday when, when we were enjoying each other's company? How can we get there? Why? I mean, do you remember? I know you remember. We had that, actually the, during my active addiction, the only thing that even showed any promise of working at all was we had a period where the rule between us was, before you say anything, put it through the nice filter. <laughs> Make sure that whatever you're saying, whatever it is, whatever it is, is nice. And God, so don't be mean to each other. It was so hard. I think you did much better at it. Well, okay. Yeah, I... It doesn't Again, come natural to you. It does not come natural. I'm a different kind of nice. You're a different kind of nice. It was hard. Because, again, I have a really hard time, you know, uh, faking it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I I think that it was just good for you. because It was better for you and easier for you because you had managed people at that point. And we had, you know, so you were good about, you know... Speaking to people when you were frustrated, I always used to say that you were being condescending. I still think that you were being condescending to me a lot of times when we would, when you would speak to me like that, but, and then that would just piss me off more. So then it was really hard to put it through the kind filter. I was very condescending when I was drinking. I right. didn't think of you as an equal. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that I know I would never have said that out loud, but I I didn't, and I I have so much more respect for you now in sobriety, and I, I guess because I get to pay attention to all the little, 
little intricacies that I ignored. But I think I think that that worked. It was hard, but it worked. But there was a lot of things on my end that were left unsaid. Yeah. Just push it on down. It'll stay down. Push it down. Just push it down. Don't worry. Just add work. To the that pile. works. That works well. Push it down. Yeah. Yeah. How long do you think that period of lasted? I know it was the most successful thing we tried mm-hmm. until I got sober. Um, I don't know. I I think we tried it off and on, but it would be stuff like that where okay. We're doing this thing where everything we say is nice to each other. That's the solution. We just got to do that all the time. It's not the drinking. That's not a problem. We just got to do that all the time and everything will be fine. So just another huge form of denial. I think it's 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 probably, like for us, you know, my decade of active addiction, it just draws it out. It makes it last longer when you do have some success in relationship management mm-hmm. in the midst of active addiction. I get really sad when I hear people talking about, oh, you know, we had this great weekend. He only drank a little and we just got to find that and keep that going. And I think to myself, no, no, you got to not find that and keep keeping that going is going to put you both in extended denial because you're going to think that you can muscle your way through this. Well, I just think about, I just am like still thinking about our being kind to each other, which was really, again, hard for me because I'm not like that. But also, being kind to each other, it wasn't about being kind, it was about being respectful, and that was the ultimate goal. And and sometimes being respectful is just being respectful of someone else's opinion of, I'm going to disagree with you on that, I'm mm-hmm. calling bullshit on that, you know, like that's not how that's going to work, you know, and you have to sit, and you have to take it, and you have to be respectful, okay, they have an opinion, and I've got to listen, because it's probably, you know, either heartfelt or thought out, correct, whatever. You know, I think that the being kind was one thing, but it totally lacked integrity because there wasn't respect behind it. Yeah. And so that's why those weekends of if they only drank a little bit and it was okay, you're pushing it down and in denial and there's still no respect because if you want your partner to quit drinking and they're only drinking a little, they're not respecting you and your needs and they're not respecting themselves to think, oh, I could be a better person without any alcohol. That's an excellent point. I know it wasn't anything related and, to this no, conversation. It, it ties in. You can be a better person without alcohol. We talked earlier about how stressful it is to put rules around your drinking and try to control the uncontrollable. It's like another full-time job trying to stay on top of that. And when that's out of your life, when you're just sober and you're long-term sober, so you're not dealing with the temptations and the the stress from the you know, trying to break out of the patterns of drinking, once you're past that, over that hump, all that stress goes away. And so I I think when we talk about relationship stuff, it does give you the extra capacity, the extra energy to listen to opinions that are different than yours. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when I was drinking, if you disagreed with me, I mean, I would go into, my job is to convince you I'm right or to somehow disregard your opinion because I don't have the time to process your opinion and think about your opinion and consider the fact that maybe your opinion holds water and that's the way we should go with whatever decision we're trying to make. I, just, I don't have time for that. I'm too stressed about controlling this drinking, so I've got I've to convince you that I'm right or somehow find a way to ignore you because the idea of of thinking about a change in plans, I, I don't have any room for that. And and now I do. Mm-hmm. Now I do. Because I'm not putting myself under all this self-imposed stress to control my drinking. Mm-hmm. i got room to think about maybe we're just going the wrong direction and there's a different direction that Sherry's talking about. Mm-hmm. And this applies to parenting, relationship, work, all of it. So some of the... I mean... It's a big regret for me when I look back on the number of times that I just blew you off. Because now that I don't, some of the best decisions that we've made and some of the greatest joys in our life have come from your ideas and suggestions and thoughts. And um, God, I wasted all that. I I talk about the word denial. I denied all of that. Like you said, you did felt you felt denied. Um, and I was the one doing the denying. 
So I think the kind of foundational point to end on is that there is a cycle to this active alcoholism thing. If you are eventually going to get sober and get healthy, you're going to have to go through a lot of the stuff that we've talked about here. And getting stuck along the way in places of denial, it's just going to delay the inevitable. I mean, this works the same for everybody. We're all human. We've all got the same emotions, relatively, right? And so you're going to get from point A to point B eventually. And the less time you spend stuck in denial in different chapters in your story, the quicker you can get from point A to point B. And I think that's the whole point of this podcast, not just this episode, but this podcast overall. You and I aren't brilliant geniuses. We didn't, like, solve alcoholism. We muddled through. It was nasty. It was awful. It took longer than it should have. We made all the mistakes. And we got to the finish line of of sobriety, and, and now we're working toward the finish line of relationship recovery. But we did it the hard way. And hopefully, by talking about it the way we are, we can help other people take some shortcuts. And a huge shortcut is to just eliminate the areas where you're denying the, the truth in your life. Because you can move a lot faster without carrying around these thoughts that uh, it's not as bad as it is. Mm-hmm. If you have sought out a podcast on the internet that's about relationship recovery from alcoholism, it's bad. You don't have to be getting beat on for it to be bad. You don't have to have lost all your money for it to be bad. If you're listening to this podcast, it's bad. Stop denying yeah. it. And I, I think that along those lines, I, I want to say that if your partner, who's the alcoholic, is is trying to convince you that it's not bad, but you feel it is bad, everybody has their own different thresholds. And, I mean, I was maybe more tolerant of some of the red flags early on because of just my high school experience and growing up with an alcoholic father that was out of the house, but still he was involved in our lives. So I think you need to, like you said, if you're fine, if you're looking and researching for this, then, then that's your threshold. That's what you can hold and should value yourself. And Okay. So on to our second hour of what? the podcast about denial. Now we're going to talk about a river in Egypt. Oh my God. I don't have time for this. Stupid dad jokes. You're, wait a minute. Where are you I'm going? Just, I'm done. I'm done. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.